Registration is now open on What's Your Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazel Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. This episode was sponsored by Girls Can Crate, a subscription box inspiring girls to believe they can be and do anything. Real women make the best heroes, and every month they deliver them. Hi, Olivia. Hi, Katie. Good to be back. Season three? Yeah. Season three. Very exciting. We have both been traveling uh, around Europe and gathering interviews, and uh, we have... A cool, wide range of women to talk about. But today, today, we're going to go to 10th century Saxony. Ooh. Wait, Saxony. Uh, yes. England? <laughs> Germany? Or Saxony? France, maybe? Uh, Norway? I don't know. Vikings? <laughs> yes. In fact, possibly all of those things. Oh, all right. <laughs> Depending on how you define a Saxon person. I feel smart now. <laughs> Right. If you know Beowulf, or if you know Vikings, or if you know Dark Ages, warrior culture, that's where we are. Dragons and stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so all of these frames of reference that we have, Beowulf is a man. Vikings, they're they're big, bad warriors. What we have is this hugely male-dominant warrior world. Where are the women in these stories? Right. Well, let me give you your options. If you were a woman in 10th century Saxony, and you tell me what you would want to be. Okay, option one, you can be a great warrior, Mm. perhaps like a chief, and lead men into battle. No. That involves getting hurt. (laughs) Oh, right, right, of course. Physical coward here. (laughs) Right, we've already established you're a physical coward. Okay, Yes. so option two, you could become a nun. Oh, well, I mean, come on. We've also already established that I want to be a nun. (laughs) Okay, well, done deal. (laughs) Well, your third option is the domestic life. Hearth and home and babies and cooking and whatnot. Keeping babies alive in a era of, like, cooking over open fires seems far too stressful for me, and I am not. Yeah. Poisonous stuff and rats and no thank you. Yeah. Although back then, they swaddled babies. And yeah. like when they swaddled them, they just wrap them up really, really tight and right. hang them on the wall yeah. so that they couldn't roll into the fire. <laughs> See, I want to bring that back. Yeah. yeah, I know. Just hang the baby up. It's a cute decoration. Yeah. Can we do that until they're like seven? <laughs> I was thinking more like till they're 17. Yes. Also that, but they would be heavy. <laughs> oh, good point. <laughs> <laughs> but you would choose none? Well, wait, is... Uh, I guess we don't know because, well, maybe you'll tell us. Is this like none like I want to be a nun or is this like Uh Hildegard of being a nun where I'm up all night praying because I'm not into that? In fact, even though we're in the same region of the world as Hildegard of Bingen Mm. and 200 years before Hildegard of Bingen, this, Mm. this being a nun isn't being Hildegard of Bingen nun. This is the kind of nun you want to be. Okay, I choose that. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) The woman we're going to talk about today chose that too. (laughs) Yeah, yay. Her name is Hrosvitha, although you can pronounce her name two different ways. Okay. Either the Saxon way, which is like the Germanic Hrosvitha. Yes. 
Actually, if you said it that way, it would be Hrosvit. Hrosvit. Yes, All which right. makes her sound badass, I think. Yeah, but, I've got to find my good German. Yeah. But the Latinized pronunciation of her name is Hrosvitha. All right. And she wrote in Latin and uh, wrote her name that way. Mm. So that's how we're going to pronounce her name today. All right. That's easier on the voice yeah. anyway. Hrosvitha. That makes her sound classy. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Her name means strong voice. Ooh. And that really <laughs> tells you about who she is and what sets her apart in this era. Because in this era, which some historians would call the Dark Ages and other historians would get really upset about calling it the Dark Ages, <laughs> we have very few women's voices at all because they didn't write stuff down. They didn't get written into the records. We just don't know the stories of women in this time period. And yet here we have this really strange case of a unusual woman who had a strong voice. Cool. In this sea of almost nothingness, we know about this really interesting woman who lived her life in the middle of that warrior Saxon Viking culture of the Dark Ages. And you know what she did? Mm. She took ancient Roman history, full of violence and male dominance, and flipped the whole narrative around so that women were victorious instead. <laughs> she wrote them into plays. I'm Katie Nelson. And I'm Olivia Mickle. And this is What's Her Name? Fascinating women you've never heard of. Okay, so if you were a woman and you lived in that culture and you didn't like it, you couldn't change the whole culture. Mm -hmm. From my perspective, the best thing you could possibly do is just build yourself a little island or create a bubble around yourself mm -hmm. where things are different. And I feel like that's what she did. <laughs> I see her asking, why is this the way things are? How did we get here? How could things have turned out differently? Mm. So the person I talked to about Rosvitha. My name is Mark Damon. I'm a professor of classics and history at Utah State University. Now, Professor Damon is a classicist, so he studies mostly ancient Greece and Rome. So he has a slightly unusual historical perspective. Mm. Well, for starters, a thousand years is young by my standards, right? <laughs> uh, history doesn't exist until at least 2,000 years later. How can you write history when you don't know the end of the story? Yeah, I so I, we can write history about Rome because we're pretty sure where it's going. But American history is an oxymoron, <laughs> right? How can you write a critique of a novel that's in chapter 17 and you don't even know how many chapters there are going to be? <laughs> so I just don't buy this. So a thousand years is just on the edge of being a bit on the fresh side, you know, for me. It's just, it's, it's a little bit new. So I was kind of uncomfortable with it being that modern because I'm just not quite sure how it's all going to play out. So here's why Hrosvitha is so unusual. In a thousand years of European history, from when Rome starts to decline in the year 400 until the year 1400, for a thousand years, we have no plays written at all. Mm. However, right in the middle of that thousand years of nothingness, we have six plays pop up, and they're written by a woman. Wow. <laughs> and she's the only one in that whole thousand year time period. The other plays that we've got go back to Seneca, that's Nero, that's the first century AD. So in the Western tradition, we have plays written first century AD. You have to go to the 10th century 
that is 900 years to Hrosfitha before you get another play that, that comes down in the tradition. Others may have been written, but they weren't preserved. That's mm-hmm. the next thing preserved. Then you've got to go another century or so, and you begin to see the liturgical plays that are being presented in the churches, out of which will come you know, the mystery play traditions and yeah. all of that that will emerge in the high Middle Ages. So really for a thousand years, wow. we have six plays by a woman. <laughs> and that just is this compelling riddle yeah. to us. It's just this wonderful anomaly that she's the only one. She's the first female one. She's she's so cutting edge that it we don't know really how to put her into a, a cultural context. Wow. N- nobody would have predicted a Hrothi. The texts of Hrothi, the these plays did not exist. Nobody would say, oh, there must have been a nun writing plays in this age. Right. Without the evidence of the plays. We, we, and so it's that shocking. And she, uh, she's saying things that we don't really expect medieval women to be saying. And in a language we don't expect them to be saying because you have to be educated to do Latin. And to do it as well as she does. Her Latin is very good. <laughs> a student, no question. Wow. How did you come across her in your studies? Well, I'll start with the apology to begin with, which okay. is I am not a medievalist, <laughs> and this is not the field that I actually study. I'm a classicist by training. I work in classical drama, uh, particularly the uh, comedies that were written in the second century BC, uh, and Terence. And Terence is the author that she claims to be pulling from. So I'd always kind of oh. known about Hrosfitha because she gets mentioned in Terence. If you read to the end of a Terence book, which professionals have to do, okay, <laughs> you get to, here's the afterlife of Terence, and he's used in the Renaissance, blah, blah, blah. And they always go, and there was this canonist who lived in the 10th century who adapted his plays for Christianity, and you have to know that for your doctoral exams, and you go on, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's the Middle Ages, classicists. The way classicists see the world is it ended in the 4th century AD, and it began again in the Renaissance in 1400. And in between was some unfortunate stuff, which you don't need to know. And that's really was the approach I got out of graduate school. So I knew nothing really about this age. And then I came to a department where I taught history, and I discovered the Middle Ages by teaching it. And I fell in love with the period. It was it was one of the most productive and interesting periods, and it used all the classical stuff that I knew. I, I felt very well informed, hmm. and so I was naturally drawn to Hrosfitha because it's a, a direct extension of what I study when I study Terence. Hmm. So, she lives in Saxony in the 900s. I don't know if there's any simple way to sum it up. They don't write things down. They are a warrior type of people. Mm-hmm. Just north of them are the Vikings in Scandinavia. And in the, over in England, so like northwest of them, there's the Anglo-Saxons in England. The Anglo-Saxons are actually uh, descended from Saxons. Mm-hmm. So they're all kind of intermixed. Saxony isn't actually its own kingdom, though. It's part of the kingdom of the Franks. And the Franks are another (laughs) warrior tribe who um, grew their kingdom immensely Mm -hmm. uh, under this guy named Charlemagne. And uh, when the Pope allied himself with the Franks, then that whole kingdom became the Holy Roman Empire. Ah, okay. (laughs) So it's a bit complicated. Yeah. Um, so are but, the Saxons the Celts? Uh, no. So the Celts, 
they're the Celts they're are earlier at that point. Mm-hmm. Okay, the Celts are there before the Romans come. Right, and at this point, the Romans have come and gone, okay. and Rome has fallen. Right, and so now we're in the middle of the Dark Ages. Yeah. Now, Mark Damon is a classicist, so he gives us the classic narrative of the Dark Ages that it's a it's a dark time, and civilization is you know basically gone. Mm-hmm. The whole period is very difficult to put together historically because the sources tend to be a little bit later. So we get people writing in the 11th century and the 12th century about all of this, but but what they tell us suits their needs. And so we don't know to what extent you can read this. There are sources from the day that we can do this. There are letters. There's Rosvita herself and this, but it's very hard to put put things together because Europe is very much coming out of a very dark period, right? I mean, you've got to remember that the fall of Rome has taken place about four or five centuries before. There's been a long dark age where Europe really just has to pull itself together like this. Charlemagne in Northern Europe really kind of mounts some kind of cultural offensive against the darkness here, and we get the Carolingian period, but that really peters out with his successors, so it's very short-lived. Saxon Germany is not really Christianized. He has to go up there, and I think it's actually every year go up there and go, do you guys remember you're Christian? And they all go, yes, yes, and then go back to worshiping Thor. Hrosvitha, she's a nun. But this isn't the world of Hildegard of Bingen, nun. Mm. This is 200 years earlier, and it's a very different Catholic church. This is a very different um, Christian church than the one we are aware of. The the first millennium of Christianity um, is... It was just conducted in a different way. It's also a very, very male-oriented culture. At this point, convents are basically little islands of female power. Hmm. And when I say convent, boy, don't think Sound of Music, right? Hmm. Uh, What these are are where women who really want to live in a community of women, Mm -hmm. right? So they're not really men controlling the immediate environment. And they are nieces of emperors and really powerful people. So we've, we've really got a women's country club. That's really what this is. And, and the, these women actually, on paper, own armies and mint coins. They, wow. they're, they're, they're CEOs is really what they are. So she's really this wonderful little moment in history to be able to assert her own kind of independence as a woman. Rosvitha is educated. She's reading these ancient works from Greece and Rome, and they're full of violence towards women, mm. especially Terence. And they're, they're comedies that Terence wrote. And the comedies involve scenes that modern audiences are pretty horrified by. Oh. Um, and they really, they presumably, that was really funny in ancient Greece and Rome. Right. You know, so she's kind of dredging these out of the antiquity and reading these ancient plays and grappling with them herself. 
she lives in this male-dominant violent world where she probably sees violence toward women all the time. Mm-hmm. And here she's reading evidence of it from the ancient world, from ancient Greece and Rome. Maybe she's thinking, why is the world like this? Why is this the way it is? And she decides to rewrite the plays. Now, these Roman plays are full of crass humor. Terence writes a kind of, it looks a lot like sitcom. It's, you know, the family in trouble because the young man has impregnated the girl next door and hasn't told his father and blah, blah, you know, and full of um, prostitutes and slaves and all sorts of stuff like that, which is not your normal nun fodder in there. And so... I went into the, you know, how do you take Terence and Christianize him? He just seems remarkably unconvertible. Yeah. And she does a remarkable job, but it doesn't look like Terence. Initially, I thought, okay, she's rewriting the plays. She's going to Christianize them. She's going to tidy right. them up. She's going to make them holy and inspirational, things like that. Family um, values theater. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, But no, she doesn't clean up any of the crass humor. Those come right through in her translations Mm. of the plays. But what she does is flip the gender roles. Oh, awesome. Where the women are the butt of all of those jokes in the Roman version, she flips it around and makes men the butt of all of those crass jokes in her version. (laughs) And that's why her plays are so often about these women who stand up to men like Diocletian, like the Roman Emperor Hadrian, who, who are all painted as bad guys. And these women stand up to him and with the power of Christ, take these guys down and humiliate them. Right? And so, oh, and in comic, in comic ways, too. So you get... I kind of love imagining a convent full of nuns staging these really <laughs> crass plays and just everybody laughing at these dirty yeah. jokes. <laughs> yeah, we do not think about convents that way. No, <laughs> not at all. So, you, like, crass, what do you mean by, like, how crass are these scenes? <laughs> well, let me what give you What are these ex- nuns doing? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, let me give you an example. In one of Terence's plays, a rape takes place during the course of the play. So a young man in disguise goes inside a house, violently rapes a young woman, and it's described as violent. And uh, her clothes are ripped, and she's weeping and bruised and all of that. The young man, who is the hero of this play, comes back outside, describes the rape to his friend, and then goes off merrily to change his clothes because he's dressed up as a eunuch at the moment. And he sees that as humiliating, not the rape. He'll, of course, marry the girl in the end, right? So we'll have a happy ending. but. Whoa, one heck of the beginning of a marriage. Right. Ross Vitha must have read this with the same horror we do. In fact, the play by Terence is one of the funniest plays he writes. But in the middle of the play, this rape happens, and you can just watch modern audiences just come to a frozen lock. And they just cannot engage with the rest of the play because the rape is just so horrifying mm. in there. And it's, it's part of the convention of the day in the classical age and the attitudes toward women. And Harasvitha must have looked at this and gone, this is wrong. And she really writes it from the other side, where the men attempt to rape women and for God's intervention and miracles, this all gets stopped. The men are humiliated in the process and the women reign supreme. The fish are laden, the 
Her battle is not a physical battle. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a psychological and a cultural battle. But she talks a lot about physical battles mm. in her plays. Her plays are notoriously violent. And the descriptions of torture that the virgins don't feel because God protects them. But the actual threat of torture and the torture that is described is, is really graphic. Right. And so she's, she's creating a heroic model for an ideal that she sees as very important to the understanding of the world. And now let's pause for a word from our sponsor. Girls Can Crate is an awesome subscription box that introduces girls age 5 to 10 to real, fearless women who made the world better. Every crate features an inspiring woman, a 28-page activity book, plus everything you would need to complete two or three hands-on STEAM activities and more. What's Her Name believes that real women make the best heroes, and every month, Girls Can Crate delivers them. Girls Can Crate, C-R-A-T-E, dot com, and use the code HERNAME to get 20% off. There's another thing about Frostvita that fascinates me. It's the structure of her plays, which I don't think I would have noticed. <laughs> but Professor Damon, with his classicist's eye, he noticed it right away. So Professor Damon, he knows all the Greek and Roman plays, and mm -hmm. he's performed the Greek and Roman plays. You know, he picked up on the highly unusual structure of Rosvita's plays. It's nothing like the plays of Greece and Rome. It's nothing like the plays she was reading and rewriting. Hmm. While she writes in a classical language, she's imitating the language of Terence, I believe also of Plautus. I think she read Plautus, but was way too embarrassed to say that she read Plautus because he's just a little bit too risque. <laughs> but she, while she's doing that, she's not constructing these plays by looking at Terence. Because Terence's plays are written in a very different way. They tend to have long scenes. They uh, tend to move like scene by scene through the action. So the lover finds out this. So he goes to his father and he gives the money back. And then the slave finds out that the lover's given the money back. Mm -hmm. and But it was all a mistake. It has to get the money back a second time. That's a great comedy. <laughs> okay. So in other words, you move kind of sequentially through. She does these things where a character will come on stage and go, I'm really upset. And there'll be a chorus of people that go, well, what are you upset about? And the carol go, well, I can't tell you right now, but let's meet later. And the next scene is them. And she goes, now I can tell you. Like, <laughs> so it jumps in times, it jumps in place. It looks like a movie. It's, it's cinematic in the sense that it, it doesn't follow the unities of Aristotle, at least in terms of time and place. Ancient dramas tend to take place during one day. They tend to take place exactly in one place. She hops all over the place. Yeah. And thing, she cuts back and forth and things. And she intercuts scenes with other scenes, which is very much what you do in cinema. But even Shakespeare doesn't do it. Shakespeare tends to start a scene and end the scene, and then the characters may 
go off and then come back talking to each other, but they've done something in the meantime. Yeah. It's not an intercut this way. So it's hmm. really modern in the way that it's actually structured. And that is fascinating. Where is she getting it? Yeah. It's, there's something very oddly innovative from the perspective of a classicist. Yeah. So when I went and read it and went, what are they doing here? This is not Terrence. So that was wonderfully disconcerting to see. But if you were looking at it from a modern perspective, you would just assume right. that's the way it's done. Right, yeah. But from her perspective, who's looking backward at Terrence, it's quite unusual. Wow. So the only possible explanation is time travel. Yes, right. She's a modern woman. She went back in time and said, maybe right. I can change the course of history. Right. Okay, 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 I'll admit it. I am Horosvita. Okay, fine, fine, fine. God, you, if you're going to press me that way, okay. do you know what's going to happen on my YouTube site? All right. Professor Damon translated one of her plays and staged it. Wow, what a challenge. And also, maybe, what a challenge to get an audience to care about that. Right. <laughs> so we had a conference come here, the Rocky Mountain Medieval and Renaissance Association in the late 1990s came here and I was part of the theater department and I said, you know, we've got these plays. These people are probably the only people in the world that would flock to a production of Frost Vita. Let's do it. And so I managed to get together a little team that was um, student directors, eight really brilliant all-female actors and they were, they took over the show. It was, it was, it was a wonderful experience. I think it's an amazing challenge to take on. Take something that was funny to 10th century nuns and try to make it funny to a modern audience, to make it interesting and accessible. Yeah. I mean, like, it's hard enough with Shakespeare, but this is 700 years before Shakespeare. Yeah. How do you make a modern audience uh, care about a play like this that that doesn't abide by our rules of what makes an interesting story? Well, um, that that is the great fear of all this. So you just poked an electric stake right into my heart <laughs> and juiced it, attached it right to the battery. So thank you very much. You're right. We're utterly paranoid as translators at all times. Of, is this actually going to work on the stage? Mm. Right. And you have to understand that you're providing as the translator only one element in what's being done, right? Because the director, the designers, mm. and and most particularly the actors mm. are going to bring this thing to life or, or not. And I just had a wonderful team. So I knew that if I was going to go down, I was going to go down with a really wonderful party <laughs> of people that I would really enjoy going down on the Titanic with. <laughs> and so we gave it a shot. But we, we got some interesting audience response, and they were engaged. Nobody walked out. Nobody burned down the theater. So oh, it was a success yeah, a by yeah by certain standards. Um, you really, I, I looked for things that have modern analogs of some sort. I didn't try in any way to translate it into language that sounds like the Latin. Mm. English is really beautiful in terms of the richness of the vocabulary, the way that you can put words together is just magical. That's not as true in Latin. Latin is is bulkier. Mm. So much of comedy comes from cultural context. 
So how were you able to take something that was funny a thousand years ago and make it funny today? In other words, what's a great 10th century nun joke? Yeah. Is, is what you're saying. Uh, there aren't any. Yeah. <laughs> like this. But there's some really absurd things. And so you've got to say to yourself, one of the places I translated is named Callimachus. And it's a study in, in people coming back to life, which is just like, Resurrection as a joke in a Christian context? Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> you're looking at the crucifixion itself, and you're writing this kind of lyrical, I almost said comical, but it, it is kind of comical piece in which people start coming back to life because St. John is learning to do resurrection like Harry Potter learning a spell <laughs> and is bringing these people back to life, and they're popping back up and doing this. And it's it's... I'm sorry, it's really funny. Wow. Audiences just fell over laughing because it contrasted so well. And remember, ah. comedy is a lot about contrast, yeah. right? Short and tall, old and young, right? You know, all I can say is I don't know what a 10th century nun joke is, but she's got timing. She's basically doing what, what we're doing today with movies like Wonder Woman. We're taking a world where women don't usually have power and and giving yeah. power to women. She's basically doing that, cool. and she's even doing it in a cinematic way. <laughs> I feel like she would be a she would she's a screenwriter from the modern era, transported back in time. Wow. I've seen some really interesting uh, productions of her shows that do not necessarily seek the things that I'm seeking. Mm. I mean, comedy is the cruelest of all theatrical genres because the audience knows immediately at all times exactly how well the thing is working. Right. right? In tragedy, you know, you hear the soft sobbing over there, you know, but if it's not there, they're qu- they're crying quietly. Yeah. If they're not laughing, oh, golly, you're comedies did mm. like this. And so I become very nervous when I present something as a comedy, which in many ways she is she is doing not not necessarily in those words, but she's working out of the comic tradition explicitly from Terence. And so I see comedy. Not all people, people like to also do productions in which they really play up the sense of holiness in what she's doing and the sense of the ritual and the fact that she is using a lot of text of the Bible. She's adapting a lot of text of the Bible that has to do with biblical ritual. And so, so different productions are that. So one of the things I would do is I would encourage people to think about these plays and, and produce them. They, they are a, the lone island in this very vast sea of no theatrical writing. And just for that reason, I think, have significance in our culture. So the big question is, what was she doing? Or, you know, was she, was she trying to change the world? Was she, was she setting out to start a social movement? Well... No, probably not. Because yeah, because who would have seen these? Just the other nuns, right? Right. They're, they're entertaining each other. Exactly. In their weird little bubble that's totally separate from the real world. She's not saying, hey, world, come and read and watch these plays and then change your ways, you know? Mm-hmm. And that, that actually reminds me of Sahib Jamal Gizatulina that we talked about. You yeah. Know, the Russian actress. She is doing that. She's right. saying, hey, world, come and watch these plays and change the culture. 
But Rosvita, she seems like she's just writing funny stuff that made her laugh and helped her make sense of the world around her. Hmm. I've taught playwriting classes for years, and the first thing a play's got to have is some kind of theme or point or message. You've got to be trying to say something about the human condition mm-hmm. that we train playwrights today say, don't say it. Okay, if, if your whole point is that women are mistreated or hating other races is a bad thing, mm-hmm. right, don't, don't say that as such because it sounds preachy, mm-hmm. because we want subtext. The opposite is true in Hrosvita's day. So in a way, if you say, what was she after and what does she want? Read her plays. She doesn't hide it. Ah. She is very blunt about saying Christianity is the only way of life. This is the way the universe is shaped. And women play an incredibly important role in Christianity. (laughs) And here are examples of women doing that. You should let them be models in your life. If they staged the plays, we we can't be positive that they did. Mm. But if they did stage the plays, it's all women. Right. It's all women cast. And that never happened in Greece and Rome. Right. And it never happened in the 1400s after the fact. So they're totally weird in that way, too. Yeah. This would have been an all-female production simply for themselves in order to maybe dream up the world the way they wanted it to be. Yeah. Or, you know, maybe it's like alternate history where they're saying, what if things had been different? What if yeah. things had been reversed? I see somebody struggling with creating a performance that is effective and gets across a thought. So just the artistic struggle. I mean, why does Michelangelo paint the Sistine Chapel, mm. right? Is is because that's a way of working out the problems in your life. You put them into a context and like a little experiment, you run them and you let them flow and the themes naturally kind of emerge out of that and the truths about humanity emerge from this. And to watch anybody go through that kind of a struggle, and it can be sports or mountain climbing, it doesn't have to be the arts, that's what I see as universal in what she's doing. her work survives at all is it's it's a shocking historical fact yeah it's cool i love seeing a way that this woman is controlling history or you know she's like owning the past and saying i'm gonna tell it a different way but she's just doing it for her own sake she it's like internal processing the real enemy in life is chaos We really are always trying to organize things. We don't understand things unless they're narratives and they're cause and effect. And so when when we go to funerals of people's lives, we narratize them. I just just came from a, a funeral and it was just fascinating to watch how people were trying to understand what this person represented to them and they told stories and they and then those stories got woven together. That's a fight against chaos. That's a fight against, this was just a haphazard thing that happened and this person is just a random thing and that randomness scares us, Mm. right? So 
in Hrasvita, I see that struggle beautifully played out in a context that's incredibly different from my life. Everybody has their own way that they create structure. We're confronted with the chaos of existence and the world around us, which sometimes just doesn't seem to make any sense at all. You know, mm-hmm. why is this the way it is? How come this is the world that we live in? Why is society this way? Yeah. And she took history stories and shifted the plot from victim to triumph. She took the people who were the victims in the original stories and turned them into the victors. Hmm. It seems like everybody can do that, both with historical characters and also in their own life. Vita. We have links to her plays on our website, whatshernamepodcast.com. Special thanks to Mark Damon and Daniel Foster Smith, who recorded the interview on site. That haunting chant, Caritas, was recorded by vocalist Maria Jonas with Pina Ruger on Crystal Bowls. You can find her at maria-jonas.de. A great variety of music was also recorded by Kate Fletcher and Corwin Brock, who can be found at ancientmusic.co.uk, and by Hrodmung Wodering. Give us a follow on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook if you want to see lots of relevant pictures each week. And What's Her Name is produced by Olivia Mickle and Katie Nelson. If you want to help make more episodes of What's Her Name podcast happen, click donate on our website, and thank you. <laughs>